Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. As you may have noticed, new races and running events seem to be popping up all the time, which raises the question, are there some specific characteristics, policies, or practices that should be built into pretty much every race event? To help us start thinking about this question, I talked with Caleb Efta, the race director of the High Lonesome 100. Caleb started the High Lonesome 100 in 2017, and the race is already a Hard Rock 100 qualifier, which, as you may know, is a very big deal. As you are about to see, Caleb is an interesting guy who has thought hard about how best to structure the race he directs, and so I talked with him about how and why he started High Lonesome, and we get into some of the specific policies and requirements of the race that are designed to mitigate the environmental impacts of the event and to increase gender equality. And just to be clear, Caleb certainly acknowledges that he has learned a lot from and borrowed from some of the other great races out there, and he hopes that others will now implement some of the policies and practices that govern the High Lonesome 100. Anyway, I think these are good things for all of us to be thinking about whether or not we are race directors. And so with that, let's get to my conversation with Caleb Efta. Okay, so Caleb, you are at a party and somebody asks you, what do you do? What's the answer you give them? <laughs> I usually pull the, uh, the high school Facebook approach and say it's complicated. <laughs> I, think that's, I think you're only allowed to do that for dating status, Caleb. Uh, well, the, the reason I say or I struggle to answer that question is because I've kind of got quite a few different things going on. And they don't really line up in the, the concise soundbite that I usually try to give people when I know they're just asking to be polite. But if I'm, if I'm trying to be fully honest and not cut corners, um, I'm a race director, uh, I'm a grad student, and I'm a carpenter. And uh, they don't really touch worlds very well. So it's, it's kind of a trio of, of very diverse and disparate actions. I like this. We're going to have fun with this. Interestingly, I guess you don't tell people at the, at the party that you're a runner. No, I, um, I think that would fall into the more of who I am versus what do I do kind of distinction. Um, and I, I also think that, um, you know, it kind of varies, you know, what you kind of touched on earlier in the conversation, which is where, you know, running is a lot of different things at different times. And sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's a grind and, and you, it's sort of, hard to always be stoked on running. And so saying I do running just feels a bit like a disservice to the, the sport itself. I think you should start saying that at parties. I do running. 
<laughs> just see what people, how they look at you. You know, I have to go to a couple of holiday parties yeah. coming up. Maybe I'll, I'll give that a beta test and see what happens. Yeah, report back. What do you do? I do running. <laughs> um, you said you're in grad school. What are you studying? Uh, well, t- I should qualify that. I am uh, working on getting into a grad program. I have an undergrad in, in business, and I'm working into a grad program for statistics. And so there's not a lot of math in business. So I'm doing a bunch of prerequisites to get into a program um, that was supposed to be in Denver, actually. But I think I'm, if that move to Montana doesn't shake things up, I'll be going to MSU up there. But So it'll be uh, mostly mostly just stats. Because statistics is an important thing to know when you are a race director and a carpenter. <laughs> Actually, the race directing uh, works a lot with stats. We, uh, we crunch a lot of data every year to make sure that we're not missing things and we're you know budgeting correctly and getting cutoffs correctly and... We analyze a lot of runner data and stuff. So so that actually works out pretty well. There's, I think, virtually no stats in, in carpentry, uh, which maybe <laughs> is why it's nice to have <laughs> the separation uh-huh. between the two. Huh. When did you get into the carpentry game? That started when I started High Lonesome, actually. I, I used to work in kind of back-end, like operations and finance and accounting, um, and then I decided to start High Lonesome, and I uh, I needed a job that was more flexible that could allow me to take off you know substantial chunks of time to put on the race that you can't really get when you're working more of a corporate angle. So a friend of mine uh, had a custom home building and remodeling business, and he needed help, and um, and he he'd kind of offered it up a few times in the past because he he needed help and was having a hard time finding people he liked and trusted. And so he was kind of like, Hey, if you want it, like it's here. Uh, and so once high lonesome got to the point where I was like, I, I need that flexibility. We, uh, we talked about it and he was like, yeah, you can do it. And, and I'd done a lot of manual labor in the past, just paying for college and odds and ends. And I, I kind of am morally opposed to paying people to do things if I can figure out how to do it myself. So, um, it was kind of a natural progression in that respect. Um, but it was a pretty big career change from the original trajectory. You were the suit and tie guy going to the office, and then you started building things. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not, not quite suit and tie. I mean, I worked for a couple of outdoor gear stores, and then I worked for like a financial reporting company, and they were all back office. So we got to play the the jeans and a college shirt count as a, as a suit and tie for us. Okay, so you've now mentioned High Lonesome a little bit, and you have mentioned that you are also a race director. Talk to me a little bit about High Lonesome when somebody asks, well, what is that? Well, I'd say the High Lonesome, it's a 100-mile trail race in Salida, Colorado. It runs in a pretty big loop through the southern Sawatch Mountains, uh, which are a really gorgeous uh, and really tall range in Colorado. And uh, it's uh, four years old. We've started it in 2017. And uh, it's, uh, it's a really incredible race. It's stunningly gorgeous. It's, it's really hard, but it's, it's still attainable. It's not too hard that it's, uh, you know, people can't do it as their first hundred. And it's hard enough that people who've done plenty still get, you know, get out there and get smoked and, ta- and challenged. So um, it really is just a great 
great race in a lot of different ways, but, um, it, uh, a lot of people kind of ask, you know, well, tell me more about the course. So that's kind of where I, I naturally go to. And it's, uh, almost exactly a hundred miles. It's got 22 and a half thousand feet of gain. And it, uh, it runs between like 80, some hundred, I think it's like 8,800 feet and, uh, 13,200 feet. So it gets pretty high and it runs uh, about 30 miles each on the Continental Divide Trail and the Colorado Trail. So it gets a lot of really classic and famous single tracks. So how do you get to the point where you're sitting around one day, I guess, and you're like, I'd like to start a hundred mile long race? That is, has always been a really hard question for me to answer. And, and I would, you know, I'd hoped and still hope to this day that after four years of practicing answering that, I'd have a better, more concise <laughs> and, and better soundbite to give that answer. This but, is your chance. We're going to work this out for you. By the time we're done, you're going you're gonna to have the, <laughs> the one sentence nailed. So let's workshop this. Yes. All right. All right. Take 32. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, th- th- there were kind of a, a, there wasn't one single overarching thing that I was like, this is the driving factor. It was kind of a combination of several different factors. Um, and one of the biggest ones for me was this feeling that, um, Colorado is one of the most amazing running States in the, in the country. It's one of the most amazing places in the world to run. I mean, there is a plethora of single track. The access is incredible. The seasons are great. Um, and, and I'm sitting here and I'm looking around and I'm like, why am I running in Utah and British Columbia and Wyoming? And like, why am I leaving Colorado? Like I shouldn't really have to be traveling. I, I still want to, of course, but like I'm traveling because I can't find what I'm looking for here. Um, and it was this feeling that there was just kind of a lack of, of races that I felt like inspired people and reflected what Colorado had to offer when you think about Colorado and trail running. And, and so I kind of just started kicking around this idea of like, you know, well, I wonder who's going to start up a race that I'm going to want to run. And, uh, and if you've ever done a lot of hundred mile training or, or really any long distance training, you know, that you get, you know, dozens of hours a week just spent in your own brain as you're, you know, grinding out miles. And, uh, I would kind of use the, those, you know, running sessions as chances to just kind of daydream a bit. And after quite a few times of that, I just kind of felt like, well, I don't think anybody else is going to do this. And I kind of think this might be cool. Maybe I should look into it. Uh, and that was kind of the first time I thought like, oh, maybe I'll do this instead of just waiting for you know someone else to do it. Um, and kind of simultaneously, while that thought process on its own is going on, um, you know, I'm going to a bunch of different races, either, you know, running or pacing or volunteering. And I'm seeing all these things that I like and things that I don't like. And, um, most people who know me, you know, usually say that, um, and rightly so I'm, I'm fairly critical and I've gotten a, a lot better, thankfully about that. Um, but it's still one of those things where if like you ask me about a movie and you're like, Oh, you saw this movie. What do you think about it? I'd be like, well, I didn't like this. That's sort of my gut reaction is to go to what I didn't like first. Um, and I've never really liked that approach to, to things. And I, I've loved running and I've loved this sport of ultra running and the community and the people more than I think I've loved anything else. 
And when you love something that much, it, you know, it's hard to criticize it. And I got tired of sitting there and bitching about things. And finally, it was just like, you know what, if I want to sit here and complain about all these things that I don't like and, and you know, be the grumpy old man in the, in the rocking chair on his porch yelling at the kids to get off his lawn version of a, of a runner, I need to be part of the solution, not just a part of the problem. And so I kind of felt this um, obligation would be too strong, but this um, almost incentive, like personal incentive to say like, hey, if you really want to, you know, make this sport better and and keep it you know whole and and be a part of it you should probably be involved more than you already are um and so that kind of you know has happened alongside of this daydreaming while i was running and then kind of the third thing that happened was um i'd kind of had this idea about the swatch being a good place for a race for quite a while because i that's the first place i went to in the state and so i was very familiar with it and spent a lot of time there and, and I'm, I, I always felt like there was just a race waiting to happen there. And so when I first did those, you know, earlier two points and kind of got to that place, I was like, well, the obvious place to go is to watch. And once I started looking into it, I was like, holy shit, this has actually got really, really good potential for a race. I need to get on this or someone else is going to get on it first. Um, and so then it just kind of started spiraling, you know, phone calls to the forest service and stuff and, you know, three or four months later, I'm like, wow, I've spent quite a bit of time on this. Maybe I should take it seriously. Let's back up for a second. You talked about how you are passionate about ultras and the ultra community. When did this start? I mean, what's the backstory here for you? And so like, I guess this might go to like, where did you grow up and when did you start getting into running? Sure. Um, well, I didn't really start running until I was in college, so we can avoid all of the where I grew up and, and what I did before college. Um, I don't have a, um, a really glamorous story about how I got into running. It was really just boredom. Um, I was uh, primarily a rock climber when I was in college, and I had to spend a summer in Kansas, uh, which is actually where my family uh, lived and well, still lives. And... Uh, I didn't want to be there. I was trying to get jobs in Colorado because I wanted to be out there. Um, but I was in Kansas and I, out of boredom, I was like, well, I can't rock climb. There's nothing, literally nothing to rock climb outside here. So, so I need to do something. Or I'm going to lose my brain um, and go insane. So I started uh, running and my brother-in-law just so happened to have been exposed to ultra running a bit before. And he's like, oh, you're running, man, we got to run. And so he gave me like born to run, uh, which I cringe saying, um, and Dean Carnaz's book. And he's like, you should read these. And so I read them and I was like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I'm kind of stoked. So I kept running. And then finally he was like, Hey, so there's this 50 K in a month in July in Kansas, which if anybody's familiar with the weather there, that means it's 110 degrees and about hundred percent humidity. Um, and he's like, you should run it. And I was like, dude, that sounds like terrible. Absolutely. And unrelenting. I have no interest in this. Um, but I, I kind of just like stuck in my mind because I was like, well, I have nothing else going on. Why don't I just give this a burn? And, uh, and I didn't know anything at all about running. So I was like, well, I should probably see if I can at least get halfway. Cause I think if I can get halfway, I can get the, the rest of it, you know, it might be ugly, but I can at least make it. So, so I Google, you know, what is 
50K in miles because I still had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and it was like 31 something. So I was like, all right, well, 16 miles. If I can run 16 miles, I bet I can run 30. So I go out on a Saturday afternoon to the state park and I, I have a uh, like a little tiny water bottle and I'm running a four mile loop and I'm going to do it four times. And I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know I needed to eat. I didn't know I needed to drink. I didn't realize chafing was a thing. Like, I didn't know anything about pacing. I didn't realize you could walk up hills. Like, I had no clue what I was doing. And I was just, like, destroyed after a couple laps. (laughs) (laughs) And thankfully, this being, like, you know, Kansas City, there was a vending machine in the state park. And so I, like, vended out, like, a couple... I don't know if vended's a word. I bought I like it. I, I'm going to start using it now. So thanks for that one. I vended some snacks and I ate it and I drank and I was like, I feel better. I'm going to go out again. And I like went back out and finished it. Um, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. So I signed up and I ran it and it was, it was absolutely terrible. It was so miserable. I ran, it was two 15 mile loops and I ran one. And it went fine. And then I started the second, immediately bonked. And I walk into the first aid station and the guys are like, what do you need? I'm like, I don't know. I've never been here before. What do I do? Yeah. And like, well, you, you should eat something. Here's a gel. I'm like, what is a gel? <laughs> is this pudding or something? You know, like, I mean, it, it's cliche and like how ignorant and uh, innocent I was. And I basically just stumbled my way to the finish line and decided I hated it and never <laughs> wanted to do it again. Yes. <laughs> And then, and that's where I sat for like a good year or so. And then I, I was in studying abroad in London, living with a, an aunt and uncle who lived out there. And uh, I was going through a bit of a rough patch and they were like, hey, well, why don't you, you know, find something kind of cool to do and, and we'll go down with you and we'll make it into a little British excursion kind of thing. And I was like, well, I don't really know what to do here. Maybe, maybe I'll look for a race. And so I found this 50K and we went down and it was fantastic. I, it was like really fucking fun. Um, I was like, maybe this running thing isn't so bad after all. So I signed up for a 50 miler in Colorado. It was actually North Fork, um, which is a, a front range race that's pretty popular. Um, and I was still deeply influenced by Born to Run. And so I had these New Balance Minimuses, which are a zero drop, no cushion shoe. And my dumb ass thought that those would be great 50 mile shoes. And so I, uh, I go out pretending to be a, a blonde version of Anton Krupiska and, and just get absolutely destroyed by 30 miles and, uh, and walked like the last 20 and I get done and I'm like, man, this is pretty miserable again. Like, I feel like, I feel like I've got, you know, 30% odds right now. Um, but I was just pretty pissed at how poorly it went. And I was like, I should sign up for one more. So I signed up for one more and then that one went, I signed up for another after that. And it just kind of kept snowballing. And then I think probably four seasons in, I was like, I think I like this sport. <laughs> and I think I'm, I think I'm kind of a runner. I think I should probably just stop pretending that I'm just doing this to prove a point and just admit I like it. Um, and, and that was about the time I graduated college and had moved, moved to Colorado. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm committing go exclusive. And, uh, you started a monogamous <laughs> relationship with running? <laughs> I did, actually. I, I, I stopped climbing, and I basically focused on my time on running. Uh, I've since uh, been more in an open relationship with running, which has been better for my mental health. Um, but basically, from there, I just kept doing the, you know, the ladder progression of making 
longer races and eventually worked up to hundreds and I ran fat dog, which is still the longest race I've done, which is 120 miles. Um, and then just, I've been really stoked on just running hundreds lately. Um, I took a year off this past year, which was necessary and, uh, I'm really jazzed for next year. Um, but I think I've, I think I'm pretty content here. I don't think I want to keep going longer distances. The two hundreds can, can hang out for a while. Okay. In all of that, that was very well told. The part that I don't get though, is you kind of have a rough first outing with a 50 K and then in the story, your London family is like, let's do something fun. And you're like, so I signed up for a 50K. That didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and I, I'm asking, this is kind of selfishly motivated because I'm currently under a lot of pressure from Brendan Leonard and from Maddie Hart here at Blister about getting me, you know, getting me to do my first 50K. And I suspect it would go a lot like what your first is describing. And then I'm trying to imagine then me being like, oh, this would be the fun thing. Another one of those things that went really badly. So help yeah. me, help me understand the jump from one to two. Yeah, I actually kind of understand oh, two to three. Like when you're like, this is stupid. I blew up again. I'm going to get better at this. Like that part I actually get, but I don't get one to two. Yeah. Um, Man, I don't know if many of us get <laughs> that jump from one to two. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, and I mean that uh, honestly because I think um, you know one of the things that now as I've, I've I've been running for for long enough, I look back and and kind of understand that, you know what happened a bit clearer. Um, running's whatever you need it to be, no matter where you are in life. You know, if if you need to get fit it's what you know it's training if you want to lose weight it's dieting if you want to uh cope it's a coping mechanism if you're just sad it's an you know way to to distract yourself like it, it's anything you want it to be and i think for me um running was just sort of filling this void and i'd never run any race before that 50k like i never did a half marathon 5k marathon or anything and so running didn't have any alternate meaning to me like I, that was the only racing I'd ever knew so it wasn't this huge um like honestly that first step was kind of the the one that set the stage the the decision to run again was just sort of returning to what I already knew um and admittedly barely knew it but it was still like close enough to the comfort zone that it wasn't this huge leap um and uh and at that time when I was in London I was going through kind of a rough patch and so I was running a lot just for a coping mechanism and I was like, I think I like running again. Maybe I should try racing. Oh, I'll try that. You know, it's 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 kind of dumb when you look at it and you're like, well, what made you want to run that far? Like a half would have been probably just as good. Um, but I think it, that's just kind of a lot of the people who get attracted to the sport are just sort of, a, you know, a bit off and they don't always make good decisions. And, and I don't know if that was a great one on my part, but it, it worked <laughs> out in the end. Seems so. I, I would like to just pitch in that I agree with everybody who's telling you you should do a 50K. Oh, man, you guys are the I worst. I 100% agree. Well, you know, it's just it's a, it's a weird kind of cult. You know, once you're close enough, you just get sucked in. See, I can tell. And I'm, I'm just, I'm digging in my heels right now before it's too late. <laughs> and then I'm just sucked into the cult. And then now I'm in a cult. Yeah. Well, for what is worth, this is a really nice cult. It's not one of those gross cults. Okay. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of, you know, nice people and 
lots and lots of food. Everybody loves to eat. That's true. There, I have met a lot of very, very nice members of this particular cult. I will, I will give you that. By the way, do you mind, can I ask when you say you were in London and kind of going through a rough patch? I mean, that's, I think, another thing that is a lot of people can maybe talk about that part of their story, that there was some sort of external struggle or internal struggle or both that they were going through, and that was a bit of a catalyst to get into running. Do you mind if I ask? I mean, was was this, did this have something to do with school or a relationship or just, um, I don't know, a, more of an existential, like, what am I doing here on this planet? Yeah, no, that I, I don't mind answering that. Um, it, it was a combination of a relationship ending and um, the existential of what am I doing and who am I kind of thing. I grew up in a really, really, really religious environment and it never worked for me. And I was in the process of kind of starting to leave that and say goodbye to that chapter and, and move into a, a different kind of person. And it wasn't going well. And it was, you know, a combination of being away from, you know, friends and family and people that you normally use as a kind of a safety net. And then um, relationships ending are usually never much fun. And, and that one certainly wasn't. Um, and running was just sort of this way that I could turn my brain off and I didn't have to think about things. I could just kind of get almost into a meditative state of just floating. And, uh, and, and that was a huge, and still is a, a really huge part of running for me is this ability to just disconnect from the clutter of everything that's going around in my life and just be me for, you know, an hour or two or whatever it is. Um, and I, you know, it, it, there's a certain type of person I think that can really resonate in the sport with this. And, and a lot of those people come from, um, you know, some kind of addiction or a substance abuse and stuff. And, and I think a lot of people kind of bring their baggage with them when they run and they realize they don't have to carry it while they're running. And so you can set it down for a bit. Um, you still have to pick it back up and that's the shitty part. Um, and that's why running longer kind of helps you distract yourself longer and it's sort of this self-defeating cycle but um yeah it's a uh, it's i think it's not an uncommon story for a lot of people back to high lonesome first of all why the name high lonesome oh man the worst part of starting any race is picking a name i would argue that f trying to finish the race would be the worst part <laughs> of any race but but i would <laughs> but i'll give you yeah names can be tricky yeah um so the name, the, the, the context of how I got to High Lonesome is important because um, I, I didn't want a generic name. And a lot of races have pretty generic names. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what I wanted. You get races like Leadville, uh, you know, Vermont. They're just like, they're geographic features, you know, or you get like the animal name and bear. And you're like, oh, I don't want that either. And, and there aren't a lot of races that were just like kind of a random brand name, you know, like run the rut is a great example of someone who's just like, here's the name. We love it. Here's the branding. And everybody's like, wow, this is cool. Um, and so when I was building this race, it was like, I don't want just this generic name. Like that doesn't fit with my vision for this race. And so I was trying all these different names and I couldn't pick 
for months. And I'm like, I'm going through permitting processes. I'm approaching sponsors and they're like, well, what's it called? And I'm like, ah, I don't know yet. And it was getting to the point where it was like really, really, I needed a name and I needed a website and all the stuff, a logo, all the stuff that comes with it. Right. And so I made a list uh, in Excel of 130 some names. Oh, wow. And I said, and, and half of those were just literally any geographic feature near the race at all. And it was every peak, every river, every everything, right? And the other half were like a mixture of animals and catchphrases and things I thought might be cool. And I was like, just put them in a list. And I had to take 10 off the list every single day until I was down to, to 20. And then I could go down to three every day. And then I had to pick once I got to like five or less, I think. So I did that. I got to five or less and I hated every single one of them every single one of them. And I was like, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. I almost just told someone else to pick, but, um, and luckily whatever force is guiding this so-called universe, um, popped this picture into my newsfeed of a bird just flying over this mountain ridge. And I was like, you know, kind of silhouetted and one of my friends, Zach, who had been helping me with the race a lot, um, had been pushing for a bird logo. He's like, dude, no one does a fucking bird. We need a bird. I'm like, dude, birds are like military, man. Like, we don't want to be the military. That's not what we are. And he's like, no, I think it could be a bird, man. I'm like, no, it's not going to be a bird. And I see this picture. I'm like, fuck, maybe it's, it's a, a bird. bird. Yeah. It's a bird, you know? And then, like, of course, you know, there's like the new girl episode where like Winston talks about having a bird shirt. And I'm like, I should pull on my bird shirt. So I pull on my bird shirt. And I'm sitting around and I'm like, I think this might work. I should lean into this bird thing and figure that out. And so I went out for a run on the course a little bit after this moment. And I was running on, on the section that's still a part of the course, actually, which is, we just call it the ridge. There's, there's no name as of yet that's better than that. And it's this huge, broad ridge. It's all above tree line uh, for about six miles. And it's between basically mile 62 and 68. And it's just so fucking hard. And it's gorgeous. And I was running up there and I was like, man, this is so good. Like, I love it. I'm so high up. It's so lonely. I can't see shit. And I was kind of thinking, I was like, all right, what are these adjectives I'm feeling? Like, I should write these down. And I was like, high, lonesome, views. And I was like, wait, high, lonesome. I've heard that before. That's a Western. I wonder if there's a name, like, of another race for that. And so I went home and I Googled it. And, you know, there's like, Highlands in the movie, and there's like a Highlands Ranch, but there's no Highlands in Ultra. And so I sent out an email to like my little gang of friends that were helping, and I was like, "Hey, what do you guys think about Highlands?" And everybody was kind of like, "Yeah, I like it. I think that could be good." And that's just kind of how we we stumbled into it. Um, and uh, it, we almost didn't go with it because there's this local um, in the wilderness area, not too far from Denver, that's got a, a loop on called the High Lonesome Loop. And it's pretty popular. It's like 16 miles. It's gorgeous. And so a lot of people, when we said High Lonesome, they were like, oh, it's in Indian Peaks. And we're like, no, it's not. You know, it's in Salida. So it wasn't this like perfect fit at first. And it took a little bit for people to kind of, you know, realize that it wasn't like this wilderness loop that everyone talked about. But um, it's I, a lot of people dig it because it fits in a way that a lot of names don't fit like when you're up there and you're like it's 2 a.m i'm so tired and you're like this is like the feeling i'm feeling i'm alone i'm in the middle of nowhere i'm way high up and it's perfect so it really i think just fit 
I like it. Next time you are trying to name something, I would like to be included in the list of people. I like naming things, so uh, I'm gonna I'm <laughs> gonna right. volunteer to be one among you know the one among the voices to help you narrow down the spreadsheet from 130 to one. So just just I just throwing that love out there. That, yeah. Okay. All right, I'll add you to the list. Let's talk about some of the kind of defining elements of the High Lonesome 100. So you you mentioned locating this 100 miler on the spectrum of 100 milers, right? From, let's say, the kind of easier end of the spectrum to the gnarliest end of the spectrum. You made the comment that you think this is, um, you know, this w- might be an appropriate 100 miler for somebody for whom this would be their first 100. Let's talk a little bit about more about the course itself or, or the nature of this race. Yeah, I, um, I think, you know, we're always curious, we being, you know, the race team on like where our race fits into the spectrum of like other races and difficulty and scenery and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's really hard to uh, quantify that stuff. So a lot of people kind of look towards the vert is sort of the go-to, you know, how, how much vert is there? The more is harder and less is easier kind of thing. Um, and, and that's not really a great comparison, um, you know, cause you can run a, a race in, you know, the South that's got 30,000 feet of vert and a hundred miles. And you can run a race in Colorado, like Leadville, that's got 16,000. And you're like, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is you're, you know, two miles in the sky. Um, and then there's type of terrain. How technical is it? What are the conditions like? How cold is it at night? How hot is it during the day? And a lot of different things. Um, and when I was making the race, I didn't want to make a race just as hard as it possibly could be. I, I don't think difficulty for difficulty's sake is is my style. A lot of people dig that. I mean, that's why there's Barkley um, races like your Ray, which are just like, how much fur can I shove down your throat? You know, like there's a lot of races that are fantastic and people love them and they just want that hardness. But I, I wanted something that wasn't contrived. That was, if you looked at a zone in the mountains and you're like, I want to see this zone in a hundred miles and I want to see it in an uncontrived way with as much single track as I can grab. How do I do this? Um, and in the high lonesome course is like, it's a, it's amazing no one grabbed it sooner because you've got this these two corridor trails, the Colorado Trail and the Connell Divide Trail, basically paralleling each other for you know 100 miles from the, the northern end of the Sawatch to the southern end. And then they meet. And I was like, that's perfect. I can grab you know both of them. And so this loop course kind of jumped out. And when we were designing it, you know, I thought it was going to be way harder. I thought it was, like, was going to be like 26,000, 28,000 feet of vert. And it was like 22. I was like, fuck, that's not enough. And, uh, and one of my friends was like, dude, I think this is plenty hard. Like, I don't think you need to make this harder. Like, just leave it. Like, let the mountains speak for themselves. Like, just, just you know, don't force it. And I was like, you know, that's a really good point. Like, I don't need to make this harder than it is. If this is what it is to run 100 miles in the Sawatch, then that's what I want the race to be. And so we, we just left it. And then it... You know, in the past three years, people um, pretty frequently, we have a lot of people who run Highlands and who've run other hard rock qualifiers or other really difficult mountain races. And a lot of them will say, like, you know, High Lonesome is one of the hardest I've done. Um, and while they're saying that, you know, someone who's never finished 100 before f- crosses the finish line and is like, I just did this thing. 
And it's a really interesting dichotomy. And I think the reason why it works is because the, the course is pretty unforgiving, but it's not unattainable. Like it's not so high all the time that that's all you're going to get is altitude. So if you're not acclimated, you get reprieves, right? But it's also not easy. So you have to be able to hike, but you also have to be able to run. And it kind of just, it hits enough different types of the sport or different aspects of like a race that every person can kind of find a skill set where they get a little bit of an advantage and then they get, you know, the rest of the disadvantages. Uh, and so it's not just this like one thing where only veterans can run it or it's too easy. Uh, and I, I love it because I think, I mean, that's why we still allow people to qualify for the race with the 50 milers. Cause like you know, there's, it's a, it's one of my favorite experiences is watching someone who I know is running their first hundred miler and like seeing them throughout the race at different aid stations and then being at the finish line to give them a belt buckle. Like that is incredible. And to, to take that experience away because the course is too hard or something just seems wrong. Let's talk about some of the other kind of maybe defining elements and related question. I mean, you, you said earlier that you tend to be pretty critical of things. And so I assume some of these staples of the way you run this race and some of the policies were born from things that you thought maybe were missing elements at some of the other races out there. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that or, or, or say like, no, that actually wasn't a direct result of like, why isn't anybody doing this? Or, you know, maybe this is something that emerged for different reasons, but I know that there is a conservation element that is important to you. Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, before diving into the conservation thing, just to touch on the point you made at the beginning of that sentence, um, the, the race was built on kind of a mix of two things, of things that I didn't like and things that I loved. And a, a lot of the parts of High Lonesome that people are like, that's fantastic, like, that's so cool, are things I took from other races. Um, you know, and, and there's there's really, it's more just kind of an aggregation of all the best parts I found in different races and then kind of correcting some of the things I saw as potentially flaws in other races and just trying to like, you know, mitigate the one and kind of boost the other. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, to that point, one of those things was also conservation. And we, uh, most people who've run hundred milers that are hard rock walls know about the trail work requirements that those races have. Uh, the first race to ever do it to my knowledge was the bear. Um, and as the story goes, the, the forest office there wasn't going to give him a permit. And then this person had the idea, well, what if we did some trail work for you guys? And they're like, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. We'll, we'll let you do it now. And that's kind of where it was born. And, um, I'm sure a lot of listeners have, you know, kind of followed at some point the perpetual, uh, pissing match that is the, who's not doing enough trail work in the outdoor world. Um, and I think there's some merit to say that none of us are doing enough. And when we were looking at the race, we're like, well, we're not coming in here to, to put on this race and just crush the trails and, and leave. Like we want this to serve a bigger purpose. We want to educate people. We want to give back. We want to, um, you know, be caretakers and stewards of the land that we're using. 
And, you know, when you're doing that and you're looking at the specter that is climate change and, you know, the fire seasons getting just astronomically longer and, and bigger, um, there's this really, really big imperative that we focus on this stuff. And I think that's getting more and more mainstream and it's great to see. But not a lot of races really lean into it. It's more just like an afterthought. And we didn't want it to feel like an afterthought at High Lonesome. So we really push the trail work. We, we have an opt-out fee. So if you can't do the eight hours of trail work, you can pay uh, a certain a fee. That fee then gets donated to a trail work company or well, I shouldn't say company, they're nonprofits um, who does trail work. And the rate that we charge you is the rate that it takes to pay someone to do your eight hours of trail work. So it's not just like this arbitrary donation, like the work's getting done and we're helping to finance it through the race. Um, and, uh, and it's great to see a lot of races kind of starting, newer races at least, are all kind of starting to do that. It's becoming pretty much a status quo, uh, which is awesome and, and needs to keep happening. Um, so, you know, from a conservation side, there's that. We practice leave no trace. We run through habitat where the boreal toe, which is an endangered species, um, is native to and there's fungus that is in certain drainages that can damage the toads so we do what's called a toad bath which is this non-abrasive chemical bath that we wash your shoes in before and after the race to decontaminate them and uh you know we do a lot of trail work and maintenance on the district itself and so it's, it's just kind of always been a part of it you know let's talk about the high lonesome lottery so this is a relatively recent change, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was our first year as a lottery. Yeah, talk to me about that and how that works. Yeah, um, well, we, we kind of knew that we'd have to be a lottery at some point. Um, most races, once they get to a certain you know level of popularity, have to kind of do that. Um, and our entrant cap is set by the Forest Service, and it's it's very low by race standards. I mean, 125 people is, is a very small race. Um, but that that's the level that they think that they can manage on the district without us damaging um, very important trails. And so they set that. And so we weren't really able to grow in pace with the demand of the race, you know. So we basically had 75 our first year and we have 125 runners our fourth year. And that's not, I mean, and we've grown in demand, you know, hand over fist. And so we couldn't avoid being a lottery as long as we'd hoped. And so once our third year entry process sold out in eight minutes at one in the morning on a Thursday night, we were, and we had a wait list of over a hundred within like 15 more minutes of that, we were like, okay, well, we can't keep doing this. So we started working on the lottery. Um, and uh, we just, you know, kind of wanted it to be, again, going back to like what you touched on earlier, kind of cherry picking the best components that we saw in the sport. We wanted it to be uh, a fair, transparent lottery that wasn't something that was um, overly complicated, but was also fair. And uh, and going back to like why I love statistics is, you know, this is one of those areas where like you can look at stuff and, and really kind of help design a system. So we were fortunate enough to find a PhD economist who was willing to help us build the mathematical component and, and uh, design kind of the structure of the lottery and then we wrote a bunch of policies on just kind of how to make it work and make it work fairly and uh it went off really really well this year we had about 400 applicants 125 people got selected and uh i think our we had about what was it 
third of them were women and the rest were male, I think. Speaking of male-female, the way you've got the lottery set up is it's a 50-50 split. Talk to me about that decision. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty difficult decision um, for, for various reasons. But the reasoning on why we needed to do it was was actually fairly simple. And this might go a bit into the weeds on the nerd level here, but bear with me. Um, most lotteries have some feature that um, benefits previous finishers in some capacity, right? And so, you know, if you finish a race, you have a better out of getting in or, or something along those lines. Very few lotteries are just strictly speaking, drawing random numbers out of a hat. A lot of lotteries that claim they are actually loaded for different reasons and they're not super honest and, and that's fine because they publicize that, but it's not what we wanted. And we wanted our race to have an element of returning runners. And so that meant that we were looking at a structure that was gonna benefit people with previous finishes. And what happens when you benefit people with previous finishes is you build into it any sort of biases that you have um, get baked into the lottery. And the, kind of the best way to explain this is if you've got a quarter of your race is female and the other you know, three quarters is male and you're giving away a certain, you know, some sort of mathematical amount of uh, the percentage of the spots are gonna go to previous finishers based on your model, um, the vast majority of those people are going to be male because you've got more male finishers than you have female finishers because the pools are different. And over time, the, the larger pool, in this case, the male pool, will actually start to completely eclipse the female pool. And you'd go from a 25% to a 20 to a 15 to a 10 to even sub-digit or, or single-digit percentage participation on the female gender. Um, and that would happen over the course of quite a long time. It wouldn't just happen immediately. But that wasn't anywhere near what we wanted our race to be. Um, you know, we deeply value community and equity and diversity in the sport. Um, and so when we looked at it, we're like, well, if we're going to do this, um, we have to split these pools up to make them even. And we weren't really sure if we were going to get enough women who wanted to run. And so we're like, well, the minimum we're going to do is give them the opportunity and just say, if you want to run this race and you want to have equal participation and equal representation, here you go. It's, it's open. And if you don't, the extra spots go to the men. And if we just don't have enough demand, no matter what, then it's just open. Everybody else can get them. And so it was a pretty, um, and I, that was the nerd side of it. The, the, like the, 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 the stats side of Caleb talking heavily there. Um, the other angle, and, and neither one of these is mutually exclusive or weighs more than the other, but the other angle was that there is a very big gender imbalance in the sport. Um, and it is really fascinating and really beneficial, and I, I'd encourage a lot of people to have these conversations with opposite genders on what might be contributing to that. Um, but there is a myriad of reasons, from huge, massive cultural, socioeconomic issues to... Um, you know, short-term ones, like maybe the cutoffs are just too tight or there's not enough pictures of women in the media or something like that, you know? And so there's, there's a huge spectrum of what you can do. And when we looked at what the race could do to help 
try to even that playing field. This was just the, the most obvious and widest reaching one we had the scope for. And we were like, well, we want to make that move. We want to be pushing for equity. Um, and uh, it, it's not an easy choice. I mean, I'm pretty risk averse and this, you know, the, the response that some people had to this policy was, was pretty venomous. Um, and it's scary to do that as a young race with, you know, not a ton of, you know, long-term stability um, to kind of put out a fairly big policy like that and say, hey, we're doing this. Um, but the response by most people was overwhelmingly supportive. And we were really gratified to see that both men and women looked at this as a great opportunity for us to do something as a community to make the sport more equitable. Um, you know, and, and we weren't really sure what that would translate to with the lottery, but we ended up having um, just under 100 women apply for 60-some spots. Um, and we've got the most competitive female field we've ever fielded. I mean, we've got Casey Lichtig, Western States, Ultra Run of the Year. She's running. we got Carrie Brooks for previous winner, Silk A, course record holder. Um, we got, you know, Becky Bates is coming down. I mean, there's some really talented females, and that's so fucking exciting. Um, and obviously it doesn't come without criticism, but we're pretty stoked with it. How many races out there are doing a 50-50 lottery split like that, or are we seeing any others follow, follow suit? When I was looking at the race scene back in 2018 when we first started talking about this, I could not find a single ultramarathon that did either in lottery or just general registration, equal representation between genders. Um, now, I think, I, to my knowledge, that's still the case. But I just to qualify, I haven't really done any deep dive um, since about a year. So it's possible someone else has adopted it. I don't think that this policy makes a lot of sense for a lot of races. Um, unless you're a lottery, that numerical disadvantage that we were talking about doesn't factor in, right? Because it's just a general open registration. So it's a pretty small percentage of the races that are lotteries to begin with. And I think those are the races that I would kind of look at and say like, hey, let's talk about why you've got 15% women when you know they're 50% of the world population. So, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's many people out there doing it. There are, I should say, several races that I've spoken to who've expressed interest in doing that as well because they're looking at becoming lotteries as well. So I think there's conversations being had about our model, other possible models, other ways to address it. And I certainly don't think it's a one-size-fit-all fit, um, but it's really cool to see a couple other races that I, and I won't name them because they're still working on them, but just, just to know that they're out there and considering it, I think is a great service to the sport. So another specific characteristic or element of this race is you guys have a transgender policy. To my knowledge, this is not a terribly common thing. Talk to us a bit about this policy. Yeah. Um, there aren't a lot of races um, in the ultra world, at least, that have a transgender policy. Um, and and we, it, we didn't even, it wasn't even on our radar, um, I'm embarrassed to admit, until Western states posted that they did it. And it was this big light bulb moment for us when we were like, 
wait, why don't we have that? Like, this is not that hard to put into place. We should have something. And um, we basically just took Western States policy. We took it to our board and we sat down and had a workshop and worked it over. And then we reached out to a couple uh, nonprofit transgender advocacy agencies to get their input. And then we implemented it. It, it was really not a lot of work to do. Um, but it felt really important because if you're a transgendered runner and you're trying to sign up to a race um, and you have to click male or female and you maybe haven't done any hormone therapy or aren't passable or whatever you want to, you know, you want to look at it as um, it, it's incredibly intimidating and incredibly potentially embarrassing, you know, to, to be, it's, it's, it's just vulnerable. And when I personally have never met a transgendered ultra runner. Not, not to say I haven't met them. I just didn't know it, but I don't think there's a lot of people out there who talk about it. But in our minds, if all we're doing is just creating a framework for you to be a part of our race in a way that keeps um, you comfortable and makes you safe and does absolutely nothing to make my job as a race director harder then why the fuck wouldn't I do that? There's literally no good reason not to. Um, and we, our policy is very similar to Western States. We added a few changes just to fit kind of our style um, and, and I mean, any race out there, if you're a race director and you're listening to this, like just, you can fucking copy and paste this and use it. I w would not have a problem with that. Um, or make it better and send it back to me and I'll take yours. Like there's no reason not to have this. And I think it's a pretty big miss if you don't. So would you mind just walk us through this a little bit? Yeah. Um, basically we, um, we, mostly just adopted from a medical perspective, the International Olympic Committee's guidelines for transgender athletes. Um, it's the most medically up to date. It's the most researched. Um, our medical directors who are both um, highly talented uh, medical doctors and looked over it and endorsed it and signed off on it. Um, and so basically what, what our policy looks like is um, if you're a transgendered athlete and you wanna run the race, you are allowed to sign up under the gender that you identify with. And, um, you, we aren't going to test you. We're not going to, you know, make you jump through a bunch of, of hoops or reveal a bunch of private medical data just for us. Um, we take you for your word the same way that we take your word that you're not doping or that you're not doing drugs or whatever else it is. Like, we're not going to discriminate against you just because this is sort of a new field. Um, and we do have in, in place guidelines that just, again, going off the international Olympic committee, say that if you are a um, male to female, that you have to be on hormone therapy for a medically supervised hormone therapy for a year. Um, and that's the criteria through which the research shows um, the advantages of um, your, you know, the gender you were born with sort of dissipate and create an equal opportunity to compete. And um, if you're male to female that, or sorry, female to male, then those um, biological changes don't really have that effect. And so they don't really matter, um, from a competitive standpoint. And then we put in a couple points in there just to say, like, if, you know, if someone discriminates against you, here's a process on how to resolve it. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's like, I think it's a two page document. It's not very extensive, but it covers pretty much every base. Pregnancy deferral. Um, Talk to us about this policy. Yeah. Um, this one came out of our conversations we were having about the lottery split and um, other ways we could do it. 
I didn't have a pregnancy deferral the first year in the race. I added it to the second year, but it was literally just, if you're pregnant, you can defer. It was pretty basic. Um, in the process of having these conversations with members of our board and spouses and partners, we realized that we were kind of being a bit flippant with the policy. So we wanted to flesh it out. And uh, the areas that we honed in on were um, kind of three components. One, adoption is just as disruptive to your life as is a birth of a child. Um, and second of all, as a partner, if you're in a partnership and you have a child or adopt a child, the effects of that life change impacted both partners. And so it felt a bit one-sided to say, you know, the woman can defer, but maybe it's a stay-at-home dad and he's the one who's the caregiver and now he can't defer because all of a sudden he can't find time to train. So we looked at this as an opportunity to basically say, what really big life changes are gonna impact people and how can we cover people regardless of their position who are impacted by that. And so by expanding the policy to include um, being pregnant, recent childbirths or adoptions, we included both partners in that. And so it covers same-sex partners, it covers um, you know, adoptions or surrogacy or whatever you need. So it really just made it, it a lot wider. Um, the deferral is still only good for one year, which for some people is still a little tight. Um, you know, especially if you have any complications after pregnancy or, or the child has medical complications or whatever it may be. So it's not a, it's not like a huge, um, it, it's really hard to take advantage of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say, um, in a negative way, like you couldn't abuse it. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it's been pretty impressive to see the number of people who emailed us. This was the least um, talked about of the three policies released, the gender split, the transgender policy and the pregnancy policy. The one that got the most pushback was the gender and then the transgender. Um, but the one that got the most just like overwhelming emails and messages to like me and, and our team was just people who were like, hey, I just adopted a kid. This is fucking huge. Thank you. Like it was surprising and, and certainly more than I thought we were going to get. So it, it felt good once we saw that, that we, you know, we, we had that chance to make a, an impact on those people at least, you know, they're running. You and I were talking a bit earlier about your wife, Kelsey, and my understanding is she works with you pretty closely on this race. Um, she also sounds awesome. So I don't know, that's just a, I think we'll put that out for the record, but what's it been like working with her so closely on this in, and I don't know, in terms of shaping policies and kind of the culture of the race? Yeah, um, it's been incredible. I mean, she is an, an amazing person. I mean, clearly I'm incredibly biased because I married her uh, and I love her, but she's incredibly smart. She's super driven. She's really articulate. Um, and she's much better at the um, kind of empath level. Like she's way more compassionate and empathetic than I am. And so it works really well for us um, to kind of have her perspective um, and my perspective when we're making decisions. And uh, we started dating right before the race about six months before the race the first year of the race and so it was really rocky at first to work with the partner because it, I mean, it's pretty consuming like the first year I put in 2200 hours over 16 months putting the race on um, and so it, you know it's consuming and every year we've gotten a little bit better um, and now we're at the point where whenever we need to make a decision 
you know, one of us sort of is mulling on it for a bit, kind of processing it, and then we, we feel like we've kind of developed something. We bring it up and we start talking about it, and we can really uh, fine tune it. Suffice it to say that we complement each other when we're working together. And uh, yeah, so it's it's been great. She she was pretty instrumental in the transgender policy. She was pretty much in charge of, of crafting that and researching it and editing it. So she basically drove that one uh, most of the way. And then she was also um, really heavily involved in the gender split decision. Um, and so, you know, as a, a professional career-driven woman, she she's um, acutely aware of a lot of the issues and difficulties that women face. So it, it added an, a nice level of accuracy to the conversations we were having. And then, I mean, even outside of all of those kind of, I don't know, what do you want to call more policy-related issues, she's also in charge of all the aid stations and a lot of the operations for the race. Um, and she does an incredible job at, at, you know, making sure the aid stations are well-supplied and getting new foods. And, um, you know, we routinely get a lot of praise for the quality of our aid stations, and it's pretty much due to, you know, to her kind of management and organization. High Lonesome is a hard rock 100 qualifier. Talk to me about that and kind of what that process was like. Just for, for like, I don't know, explanation to the, to the listeners, the way the Hard Rock works is it's a lottery, and in order to run the race, you have to um, run, or sorry, rather to apply to Hard Rock's lottery, you have to run a, um, a certain race that they've listed as a qualifier um, within a certain period of time, and then you're, it's basically like to make sure you're qualified to run Hard Rock. And it's a pretty small list, especially domestically. Um, and it's a pretty big uh, benefit to races because it pushes a lot of people towards the race to run it. Um, we sold out both years when we weren't Hard Rock qualifiers. So we weren't really, um, you know, in them. We weren't kind of like get more people in a sense because, uh, you know, we were filling up all of our spots. Hard Rock had been a big help to the race in the very early days as a resource. Um, I reached out to Dale, the Hard Rock RD, um, early in my process, and he was incredibly helpful in, you know, talking through a lot of the things that I didn't know anything about, like permitting, um, you know, planning, developing culture. He put us in touch with their medical team, so we get their medical protocols. We talked to the communications director, their aid station director. So they were a really big resource. And we'd always been very transparent that we weren't asking for support and they weren't giving support in any way that was like favoritism. They basically were just like, you asked and we're happy to help. Um, and so we didn't really know if we were gonna be a hard rock qualifier or not because for us to get on the list meant we had to, I believe, kick somebody off. Um, and no one wants to like, you know, kick another race off the list. Um, so we didn't know what to expect, and we weren't privy to any of the conversations. We weren't told by anybody that we were, you know, being considered. Um, you know, we just kind of figured we think it's a great race. We think it's, out of all the hard rock qualifiers in America, it's the one that most closely resembled hard rock in terms of difficulty and course and terrain. And so we felt like it was a pretty obvious race to fit into that, but we didn't know it was going to go. Um, and so after the second year, um, they'd sent some people down to observe the race. They sent a couple people down to run the race and they went to the board and they were like, we think it should be a qualifier. So they, they voted and I don't even, I don't even actually know the results of the vote, uh, if it was unanimous or not or what. Um, but I got an email, you know, later that year that said, Hey, you're qualifying now. 
So, it, but it was it's awesome, I and mean, we love that race, and they've they're an amazing community. So we were we were pretty stoked just to be even more closely associated with them. So, crystal ball question: Thinking about where High Lonesome might be, say five years from now or ten years from now, are you feeling like, in terms of policies and the format, things are pretty dialed? Or do you still have these ideas? Are you tinkering around in your mind about things you might like to do to the race, change about the race? Where are we in that process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, we are, we've been in this state just by virtue of our relative young age of a lot of change fairly fast. And we'd kind of like to slow the pace of that change down and just sort of settle into a bit of a routine um, and stability and just sort of enjoy the race as it is and, and not keep, you know, making big changes. So, you know, we don't really want to keep reinventing the lottery. We don't want to make a huge change. And so, so that's kind of our, our goal. With that in mind, we do have some things that we're actively working on. One of the biggest is we're trying to get a course change that would alleviate an out and back section and make it a loop, um, which has always been a really big priority to us. We've always wanted um, as I've said earlier, like a not contrived course, out and backs are a bit contrived. And so we wanted, we wanted this course in our very first year, but we weren't able to use it. Um, we still aren't able to use it, but the progress towards eventually being able to use it is being made. And so we're just sort of kind of working consistently towards getting that. Um, and that's still probably two to three years, as I said, the early side away. Um, we're, um, We'd also love to get more entrance. It is, it is really difficult for us to put on a race with 125 runners without losing money um, or breaking even um, just because there's no real scale to that. Um, so getting more runners, both in sense of ex you know, expanding our community and building a long-term financial stability to the race is something we want to do. Um, the flip side of that is that because it's, it's such a small pool, our prices are fairly steep and we don't want to be pricing out people from the race. You know, ultra running, if you look at the statistics from Trail Running Magazine and Ultra Running Magazine, average medium income of one of their subscribers is over six figures. Um, so the sport's not poor, but there are certainly a lot of people who um, are, you know, public service or teachers or nonprofits who don't have large disposable income. And so we're working on kind of figuring out a way that we can um, you know, whether that's a scholarship fund or some other process for making sure that you don't have to, that you can't be priced out of the race because that's not what we're interested in. Um, and then I think we're just kind of looking down the road at like what other areas we can do to just keep increasing our diversity. You know, we, we don't have a great deal of racial diversity. We don't have a great deal of um, involvement with, you know, locals in the area we still have very few people from Salida who run the race so we're just trying to kind of figure out what we can do to just keep building community and and preventing barriers to entry back to this question of 125 runners if you could just pick your absolute dream number for the next running of high lonesome what would that number be so i'm not asking you like about 10 years from now where there might be, of course, um, you know, issues in kind of sustainability and wear and tear and things would be adjusted for that before the next running, what would your ideal number be? 
Um, I, I love increasing by 25 runners a year. It, it's really manageable from our logistics side without, um, you, you know, we don't grow too fast. We can manage that. We can manage our volunteers, our workloads. It works really well. So I would love to see uh, a 25 runner increase, um, you know, every year from now until somewhere in the realm of, um, I'd say probably 200 to 250 tops. Um, I've run races with like 350 people in them, hundreds that is. I've run races with uh, like 600, 700 people in them. And I think that once you get over 250, you really start to lose the intimacy of the race. And so that's kind of always been my mental cap of like where I would never personally go past 250. Um, I also think that the ranger district that we work with, which is the slider ranger district, is really prudent to be... um, moving very slowly with us and watching how 125 runners impacts trails during a wet year, during a dry year, during a fire season, um, and really just making educated and, um, you know, data and factually based decisions on what our cap can be because, uh, you know, we, we have no interest in, in destroying these trails and we have the opposite. We want to make them better. And so I think from our point of view, we don't want to jump fast either because we don't know what that would look like. And so that 25 person is like that perfect amount. And just to be clear for, for the next race, right? Uh, July 31st, 2020, that already has been capped at 125. So if we're to see a 25 person increase, that would be first opportunity would be the 2021 race. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Last question. Any thoughts, plans, dreams of starting another race? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, we've got, um, yeah. So we've got one race that we're working on, um, pretty, pretty extensively. Um, that would be in Salida, but well, actually be in Buena Vista, which is just north of Salida. Um, same, same region though. And, uh, it'd be a 50 K with maybe some shorter distance distances. It'd be in the fall. So working on that, um, that one might pan out to be released next year if we can get a couple of things lined up. Um, and then we are, We've been been looking for the past couple of years for another hundred mile course that is equally as mountainous and as remote and beautiful as High Lonesome is, uh, and it's really difficult to find places like that um, that have you know the infrastructure and stuff that we need. So we're, we're still searching for those. We've got a couple of uh, I don't know what you'd kind of call them like target areas that might go, and we're just kind of you know, scoping out a little bit each year to see if we can make it go. But um, I don't think we have anything in the 100-mile realm for a couple of years at this point. The runway for those is usually about two years to get from first conversations to the race. So they're pretty slow. Yeah. Well, just keep in mind, when it comes time to find names for this stuff, again, <laughs> I just want to be I just want to be among the many folks, you know, who get to, who get to weigh in. Throw the, yeah. throw the two cents in. So as long as I, as long as we're there, yeah, I think uh, I think we can make that happen. <laughs> I've also been leaning towards the um, the, the uh, what do they call it? like the publicly sourced, like where people vote on the name. Oh yeah. Um, but I'm a little bit scared of like Racy McRace face yep. or something like that coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe not the worst name in the world. 
uh, clearly yeah, not the worst name in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, it worked out for a couple boats, so maybe it could work out for a race. <laughs> That's right. Well, you would be a true pioneer, uh, you know, so, um, <laughs> I, it, I, yeah, actually, that might be, I'm going to start pushing harder for that publicly sourced version than just myself getting to weigh in, because it'll probably be better <laughs> if it's not me, but... um. Well, hey, Caleb, this has been really fun, and I, I appreciate learning more about your background and, and sort of how you all have pieced together and why you've done what you've done uh, in terms of the policies and the stuff around High Lonesome, and uh, it sounds like you have a good thing going right now. Yeah, well, it's been great talking to you too, man. We've, uh, we've been really fortunate to have the, the team together and, and be able to have a community that supports us, so we're very grateful to be in this position and we love talking about it mm. well very cool well good luck with all of it moving forward and uh yeah hopefully talk to you again real soon yeah that's it for this edition of off the couch thanks to caleb for the conversation thanks to luke alley for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening if you enjoyed this episode then we'd encourage you to subscribe to off the couch please tell your friends about the show and pretty please, leave us a nice little rating in iTunes. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.